All right, everybody, this is Ramblings of a Transgender Christian Podcast. I am your host, Anna Hudak. So today we are discussing quite a few things. Um, I'm going to talk a little bit about how dysphoria has changed for me in these uh, almost two years of transitioning. My second year uh, anniversary of transitioning is coming up pretty quick. Uh, Just what? uh, It's only like two weeks or something. Yeah. um, Like 13 days as I'm recording this. I'm recording this on, uh, what, the 27th? So... Um, my, 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 my transition anniversary is March 11th. So anyway, you know, so that's coming up very quickly. Um, you know, and, you know, and I was reading a Twitter thread where we were kind of talking about dysphoria and like how some things have changed for them since transitioning. And so like, I just kind of wanted to talk about that a bit. Um, some stuff going on in Australia that we're definitely going to be discussing, and, of course, we will be finally digging into the Gender Accelerationist Manifesto. So, get ready for all of that. So, uh, first off, I do want to say this. Um, it's been definitely a crazy week, and I think that we probably all know why, unless you literally live under a rock. And if that's the case, I don't know how you're watching this or listening to this. But, hey, props to you. Thank you. Uh, you know, um... Oh, by the way, I do, do want to say this before I say that. Um, I started a new podcast. It's called Woke and Broke. comes out every Saturday and for Patreon supporters, uh, Fridays. Uh, basically, it's about 30 to 40 minutes every week of me just discussing some news that you definitely need to know about. It's important news, so we're not talking about anything about Twitch Debate Bros or Joe Rogan or some racist Karen in New York. You know, it's strictly news that matters and that you should know about. Um, you know, news that actually impacts lives. You know, because hate to break it to you, what uh, Joe Rogan says on his podcast is not going to actually impact your life. <clears throat> You know, what the U.S. Senate or state legislatures are doing, you know, what um, all that stuff matters, you know, Um, and also world news that is important to know. Basically, it seems that it's mostly going to focus on stuff that you're not going to hear about anywhere else because it's not flashy. It's not clickbaity, you know, so recent episode today is talking about Honduras, uh, her new president, and, you know, The fact that the U.S. may want to go in and try to, uh, you know, do some regime change there because she's a little too far to the left for her liking. And the U.S. government clearly doesn't like her to begin with. You know, we talked about uh, methane emissions and how they are higher than being reported, how little uh, plastic is being recycled. And of course, we talked about Russia and Ukraine. Uh, speaking of Russia and Ukraine, let's get to the thing I was originally going to talk about, uh, say quickly. Uh, yeah, it's been a pretty scary uh, week watching all of this happen. Um, I stand with the working class on of both Russia and Ukraine. Uh, both, both the Russian working classes of both countries do not want war. Um, and so I stand with both of them. Um, I I will not say I stand with Ukraine because, frankly, that is a abhorrent statement. Ukraine is a neo-Nazi hellhole. Um, You know, uh, it is pretty institutionalized at this point. Just look at their military. The fact that they have literal neo-Nazi battalions fighting for them in the actual military, such as the Azov Battalion. And there was another one I forget the name of. Um, 
and uh, the Azov Italian has been destroyed by the Russians, thankfully. Because, um, yes, I, despite the fact I do not support Russia invading Ukraine, I'm not going to denounce him for killing Nazis, um, such as the Azov Italian. Um, you know, so I do not stand with Ukraine, but I do stand with the working class of Ukraine and the working class of Russia. And not going to end, also I am okay with Russia killing actual neo-Nazis in the Russian, in the Ukraine military. Still doesn't give him an excuse to invade Ukraine, though. But anyway, just want to say I do stand with the working class of both countries. Um, so yeah, uh, there we go. Um, so let's kind of talk a bit about dysphoria. So... <clears throat> Once again, my inspiration for this is a Twitter thread where uh, this one person was starting to talk about how over dysphoria had changed uh, since they started transitioning. And I, it kind of got me thinking. And I kind of realized that my dysphoria has very much changed. Um, how I experience it since I started transitioning almost two years ago. So... Uh, one of the things, uh, so before I started transitioning, um, I was just a complete dysphoric mess. Fucking everything, maybe dysphoric for the most part. Um, you know, very suicidal before I transitioned. Um, had been for years. It, this was untreated dysphoria for quite a few years. Um, and before I finally was like, screw it, um, gotta deal with this. Um, you know, so... Uh, some of the things that really made me dysphoric before was a lack of lack of breasts, of course. Um, you know, having a penis, uh, non-feminine voice, uh, lack of long hair. Because believe me, I am someone who very much wants long hair, and thankfully I do have it uh, now, long enough at a. Have it. If you can see on video, got it. In, got it in a bit of a ponytail uh, at the moment. Um, and, uh, let's see, what was I going to say? You know, in, you know, muscles, I, it's not like I have much muscles to begin with, to be fair, but still, you know, just a lot of those things. Um, since transitioning, frankly, I don't experience much dysphoria anymore, if I'm being honest. I, it's just something that is mostly gone from my life. It's something that I experience pretty rarely now. Um, you know, like, it's not like I am completely content with my body, because believe me, there are a lot of things that I would still love to change about it. Like, yes, I wish my breasts were bigger. I'm not going to deny that. Um, do I like having a penis? Absolutely not. I, I you know, it, in a perfect world, everything would be gone, like yesterday. But, like, I don't necessarily feel dysphoria about it. Like, I don't feel bottom dysphoria, really. The only things I do is when I have to talk. When I'm talking, I definitely feel dysphoria. I'm not going to lie. I do feel dysphoria when I'm talking. Because it's like, why can't it be flat down there all the time, you know? Why can't... Why do I have to talk? Which, I don't talk very often. I only do it when I... For a few certain outfits. Like, I got this really cute um, purple shirt for Christmas. And it is kind of short. It does not cover down there at all. It does not cover the bulge. Uh, it barely, like, it's basically just like a belt length, you know? Like, it pretty much goes just down enough to barely cover the belt, if even that. 
And, um, um, what was I going to say? Uh, you know, but it's like, um, but you know, it's like, yeah, I got to tuck when I do, when I wear that. Um, and you know, but most of the time I don't. And so most of the time I just don't feel bottom dysphoria, to be honest. Because most of my stuff is, my, most of my out, uh, shirts are well long enough to cover up any bullshit on there. So, you know, like, once again, like I was talking about earlier, you know, um, do I wish my breasts were bigger? Absolutely. You know, like, for not very noticeable. Uh, but I don't feel dysphoria over it necessarily. You know, it's just something that's just like, I would like to see it get bigger. But it's not like I need to for dysphoria reasons. <clears throat> you know, before transition, I feel very dysphoric about my voice. You know, um, I have a very deep voice before transition. I don't really feel it anymore. Um, and it's not because my voice is all that feminine, because it's not. In fact, my voice actually used to be more feminine. Um, I've never taken voice lessons. It's done strictly by myself, watching YouTube videos and reading blog posts. Um, I actually used to have a more feminine voice. I think even when I started this podcast, I had a more feminine voice. Because frankly, it's just gone lax. And a lot of the time, I recognize I sound pretty much like a guy. Uh, because I just don't put much effort into my voice anymore. Um, you know. Yeah, like, now also I'm getting really self-conscious about my voice. And, like, I'm trying to do, like, all the little tricks to kind of, um, you know, make it, uh, sound a bit higher, uh, a bit better, um, a bit more feminine. But, anyway, you know, so, uh, you know, I, I don't really experience, <clears throat> sorry about that, I don't really experience dysphoria about that anymore, um, just, you know. I don't really experience it or feel nervous about it unless I'm out in public and I sound more masculine, you know, which I have done a few times, but, you know, um, like, I don't really know what's going on. Like, like apparently like eyebrow shapes are different between men and women. Um, I don't really know. I've never really felt dysphoria about that. Um... I don't really feel dysphoric about my body shape anymore. I used to, like, all hell. I don't anymore. Like, does my body shape look feminine? No. Do I really feel dysphoric about it at all? Not really. You know? Um, you know, my butt is does not look feminine at all. It's very masculine looking. I don't really feel dysphoric about it. In fact, I never really felt dysphoric about it, period. Even before transition, never did. Hips, I felt pretty dysphoric about them in the past. I don't really anymore, despite the fact I never really grew any hips. I just don't feel dysphoric about it. Um, and a lot of other things, you know, like, it's just, I don't really feel dysphoric about things. Like, sure, there's things I want to change. Like, I would like a more feminine shape, you know, um, you know, I would like my face to look more feminine because I recognize it doesn't look all that feminine. Um, you know, I, when, when I don't wear a mask out in public, which is extremely rare, I almost always do, I get misgendered. You know, people immediately just say, sir, it does not matter how feminine I'm presenting. They will call me sir. So I have to wear a mask to pass this female, unfortunately. You know, so, uh, there's that. Um, and then, um, let's see. Uh, you know, so it's just like, 
but like I would like my face to be more feminine, but it's not like I need to for my dysphoria, you know. So, um, you know, it's just it's just changed. Like I just don't really experience all the dysphoria I did. Just at this point, it's just things I wish would change about my body. And you know what? That's not necessarily a bad place to be because I think you know from what I understand. Everybody, you know, even cisgender people have things that they would like to change about their bodies. So, you know, like, I'm probably not going to be chasing after any surgeries. That and the fact that I already did have one surgery when I was one year, when I was a day old, and I still have lifelong side effects from that. So, that also kind of adds to my wariness of getting any surgeries. But, you know, so it's like, I think I'm mostly okay, you know, I'm. I'm mostly fine with my changes, you know, really the only thing I, for me, is like a must is somehow getting my face to look more feminine so that I'm not, so I can go out without a mask all the time, you know, so I, so that people can look at me without a mask and go, woman, you know, she, her, instead of sir, you know, so, and I need to really work on my voice, I, uh, you know, I definitely recognize that, um, I have definitely grown lax on that. Um, you know, it does not sound all that feminine most of the time. Anyway, um, it's just not consistent as either. You know, even if it is a bit on the more feminine side, it's not consistent. How I talk constantly changes. Like, my voice constantly is changing. Like, even sometimes in sense, just because, like, I have no control over it. So, like, I definitely need to... Uh, focus a bit more and, you know, focus a bit more on my voice. Anyway, um, I think that's really everything I've got to say about that. And also I got to make my, when I, when I started saying that, I think that I did not sound even remotely natural. It sounded like I was like a moose dying. Dear God. Please do not go back and re-listen to that moment. Oh gosh, that was horrid. Anyway, um, so let us. Uh, so before we get into the gender accelerationist manifesto, because we will be starting on that this week. Um, I do have one quick news story I want to talk about. Now uh, we have a new, another news story that we're going to talk about in the after show. Because yes, I'm actually going to do an after show this week. And yes, I'm also going to do a Patreon exclusive episode this week. I know I've not done one in a few weeks. I need to get back to doing uh, Patreon exclusive episodes. This has been a crazy few weeks. I'm sorry. But this week I'm going to get back to it. Um, And so yeah, the news story we're going to talk about in uh, right now is uh, from Pink News. Australian Prime Minister Scott Morrison backs cruel and divisive anti-trans sports bill. Australian Prime Minister Scott Morrison has backed a bill <clears throat> that would make it easier for athletic organizations and clubs to exclude trans people from sports. Campaigning from the Tasmanian Marginal Seat Lions on Tuesday, 22nd of February, Morrison said Liberal Senator Claire Chandler's anti-trans proposal was, quote-unquote, terrific. The private member's bill would amend the Sex Discrimination Act to clarify that limiting sports on the basis of quote-unquote biological sex was perfectly legal and not discriminatory. 
as much as the so-called Save Women's Bill, Sports Bill has little chance of actually reaching the House of Representatives, Morrison urged Chandler to pursue it. I support it and Claire knows, as Claire knows, he said when questioned by reporters on the campaign trail, the Sydney Morning Herald reported. I think it's a terrific bill and I've given her great encouragement. Claire is a great, is a champion for women's sport, and I think she's been a right to raise these issues in the way she has. Well done, Claire. LGBT activists, say, however, say otherwise. Equality Australia called on senators to stand with trans kids and reject uh, Chandler's cruel and divisive, divisive, cruel and divisive bill. Sorry, Chandler's amendments would broaden the scope that sports can discriminate against trans youth, the group said, by allowing discrimination against children under the age of 12. Because, you know, targeting children, you know, that, that that's always a good thing to do, you know. Uh, nothing says more about a civilization and how good and moral it is and then uh, targeting children politically, you know, uh, oppressing children. That's, you know, the, the hallmarks of a good civilization, quite clearly. Uh, the... The legislation intends to ensure that organizers are not limited in their ability to operate single-sex sport by the threats of complaints by of unlawful discrimination, according to the policy's explanatory memorandum. So, yeah, basically, it's just give fuck trans people. That's that's all we're doing. That's but it's literally for justification. Is we don't like trans people, and we want to make sure that it's legal to discriminate against them. It has that women's sports must be quote-unquote protected and that a male person is not entitled to demand inclusion on the basis in gender identity. Well, thankfully, no male pe- no males are demanding to go into women's sports. Only women. Because, yes, trans women are women. Cope. Transphobes. Cope with it. Deal with it. Um, trans women should and will be in women's sports. Uh, and you're going to like it. It's as simple as that. Cope and see, transphobes. And TERFs, especially TERFs. Um, yeah, let's see. Anyway, um... Uh, yeah, I think that's really all I, all I really need to read, probably, of the article. Um, actually, I do want to read this. Three and four Australians feel that trans people deserve the same rights and protections as everyone else, according to a YouGov, 2020 YouGov poll for Equality Australia. Um, anyway, so yeah, basically, like, biological sex, basically, like, limiting sports on the basis of biological sex, like, okay, but, like, trans women, if you want to talk about quote-unquote biological sex, are far more, like, you know, cis women, when it comes to biological sex, when they transition, then they are, like, cis male. I'm just saying. We look at hormones, bone density, um, muscle mass, um, you know, body shape, You oftentimes, especially if they transitioned younger, um, far closer to cis female than it is male. So, like, just saying, if you want to, if quote-unquote biological sex is your thing, then, um, you straight up have no no basis whatsoever. Like biological, quote unquote, bi- we're doing this because of biological sex, means that your your entire argument is invalid. Because trans women who have been transitioning are far closer 
in bio and quote unquote biological sex to cis women than they are cis men. Deal with it. And same thing with trans men. Trans men are far closer when they transitioned to cis men than they are cis women. And you know, just just saying, like biological sex. I mean, you know, if if you're if your if your thing is uh, you know, gotta protect biological sex, then I guess what? Trans people need to be included in that. Trans women who transitioned need to be included in the female biological sex. It's really that simple. Um, I'm sorry, but there is just straight up no genuine scientific argument against it. And let's be honest, all science arguments are just kind of bullshit, um, you know, against trans people. And it just really allows transphobes to get away from focusing on the allows us like honestly the moment we get into science as arguments uh for trans people or anti or against trans whatever you know whenever science enters the the thing you know whatever the arena when it comes to trans people trans liberation and all that stuff um we are very much going into transphobe we're basically seeding the transphobes because transphobes can always just keep moving the moving the feel the, the goalposts, you know. No matter what, the goalpost will get moved. You debunk one of her arguments. Well, guess what? They got another argument, you know, and they will never seed. That's why I strongly believe philosophical arguments for trans liberation are far stronger than scientific ones. Because frankly, it's a lot harder to keep moving the goalposts. Unless you want to completely lie about your uh, positions. But then, you know, it's also easier to expose somebody uh, for lying about her philosophical holdings than it is for, you know, getting into a science debate. You know? Uh, a philosophical discussion gets to the heart and soul of what one actually believes. Science, you know, a scientific discussion, quote unquote, allows cover. You know, it, it's a lot easier to take cover in a scientific discussion or debate than it is a philosophical one. Because, once again, it's a, it's pretty, it's usually pretty easy to tell what you actually believe and what you don't when it comes to a philosophical debate. Much harder when it comes to scientific discussions and debates. You know, because you can always just grab something else to cover up with that. <clears throat> You know, so I personally, to be honest, much prefer the philosophical discussion. And honestly, I don't think there is a single philosophical argument against trans liberation at all. There's just straight up nothing compelling. Meanwhile, I can honestly come up like right now can come up with a lot of compelling scientific arguments against trans people. You know, not saying for good ones. I want to make that clear. I am not saying that there are good ones. I'm just saying compelling ones. Ones that people can get sucked into. Um, you know, and ones that people can get tripped up by and become anti-trans with. I think when you come to philosophy, the battle lines are much clearer and it's much harder to to say, yes, I'm a good person who hates, who doesn't want trans people to have any rights when it goes into a philosophical argument. So... Anyway, uh, yeah, that's everything I really got. I think that's really everything I've got to say about that. 
So let us dive in to the Gender Accelerationist Manifesto. So we will just be reading uh, the first part. Um, so let's see. The prologue. Death to gender. Freedom to the queers. But gender dies for eating its own tail. Gender is dying already. Its death rattle is upon us. But it still has time to save itself. It is on us to hurry it along to its final end. To speed it on. To make it accelerate. Oh, and by the way, this Gender Accelerationist Manifesto, which you'll be able to find a link to in the show notes, along with that news story that I read previously, um, you can find it in the show notes. Oh, and I just realized I forgot to get a good news story for today. Darn it. Let me quickly bring up the site. And then get back. Bring it all the way down here um, with my tabs. Um. Anyway, um... So let's get back to the Gender Accelerationist Manifesto. So, oops, I actually brought up the Wikipedia article. So anyways, by Vicky Storm and M. Flores. I am sorry, I probably got mis- mispronounced that. Anyway, uh, so section one, so part one is <clears throat> gender, its function, and origins. And we will be reading section one of part one. And section one is material base. Before we can discuss what is to be done, we need to know what it is. And, as always, the place to start when understanding a social system is its material base. The material relations that produce the social system provide us with the best grounding for understanding the social system itself. Material relations are relations of production. Um, That is, they are the way we relate to the various ways we uh, produce things. We, sorry, we labor and produce things. All the society is based on upon these relations of production, and where in, sorry, all the society is based upon these relations of production, and they produce all our social systems. Okay, so basically, gender is no different. So anyway, basically, uh, to better understand this, what what is being said? So material relations are relations of production. That is the way they, we relate to the various ways we labor and produce things. So basically, uh, highly oversimplifying things, bourgeoisie, proletariat, you know? Are you those who are actually doing the labor, or are you the one sitting back and profiting off of others' labor, you know? Those who sit back and profit off of others' labor, bourgeoisie. Those who actually do the labor, a.k.a. the working class, is... The proletariat. Um, you know? So, basically, uh, material relations are relations of production. Basically, how, how, how is you, you know, what is your relation with production? Are you the one who's actually producing? Or are you the one who profits off of others producing? That's basically what is being said here. So basically the whole paragraph could be summarized as, um, you know, whether you are producing, like, how, you know, what, you know, whether you're, how, you know, what relation you have to labor. It is basically relations of production. And gender is no different from that. 
And so we're going to, uh, for about to explain why gender is no different. So where does gender's material base lie? Gender is produced primarily by the division of reproductive labor. Reproductive labor is any labor that helps to produce the next generation, including sex, birth, childcare, and homemaking. And gender is defined high how this labor is divided up. <coughs> With the ge different genders being distinct classes, which are... <coughs> Sorry about that. Um, really back off. Anyway, um... Um, sorry, anyway, what was I saying? And gender is defined by how this labor is divided up, with the different genders being distinct classes, which are expected to perform specific sorts of tasks regarding reproductive labor. Um, you know, so basically, um, you know, gender, uh, gender's material relations is what is your role? In society, in re, in you know, reproducing the next generation, you know, in creating the next, the next generation of humans, aka the next generation of laborers. Um, are you the one who bears the children? Are you the one who does the homemaking? Are you, um, the one who goes out and you know gets as a job? You know, like traditionally, historically, it's been pretty well defined. You know. There's the masculine, more masculine roles, and there are the feminine roles. Even in societies that had more than two genders, you know, most did up until pretty recently. Um, this belief that, that, you know, there are only two genders is a pretty modern um, invention. And not a good one. It is a very bad one, in fact. Um <clears throat> You know, but even if there were several, gen you know, like five, six genders, there were ba there were still two roles. You know, you you know your gender either fulfilled more feminine roles or they fulfilled more masculine roles. Um, you know, and so like you know, were you the one who stayed at home? You know, were you the one who had the children, or were you the one who went out and worked? You know, um, who was the protector, the provider? Um, of the family, you know? And so that is gender's material relations, you know? And I think we can understand, you know, which is, you know, which have been seen as the more feminine roles, which have been seen as the more masculine roles throughout history. Um, anyway, uh, let's continue on. The way gender differs between cultures is determined by how these tasks are divvied up between the genders. The particular characteristics that this produces are what is known as the superstructure. So, while gender is produced by this material base, it also involves an amalgamation of various stereotypes, ways of dress, formal speech, etc. in a superstructure which differ how we experience our gender. So, in other words... Uh, you know, our, our, you know, our relations to gender isn't strictly your role. You know, it's not strictly, you know, whether you're the homemaker, the one who protects the family, you know, you whatever, you know, what your role in sex is, you know, um, it's also how you dress, it's the way you speak, you know, it's how you're expected to act, um, which is all, you know, which is, 
in addition, you know, it's not the material base. Gender is just, just another way that gender is defined in addition to its material uh, base. You know, and these additional things, which have nothing to do with the material base, is a superstructure. You know, it's basically, you know, once again, you know, superstructure is like, you know, like societal expectations on how you dress, how you act, what you say. Whereas material base is what your actual role is. You know, are you doing homemaking? Are you, um, you know, the one who's protecting and providing for the family? Etc. You know? So. Hopefully I'm making sense. I can only hope. Anyway, um, this applies to all gender. I mean, to, sorry. And this applies to all cultures. And I want to make it clear, Okay. I want you all to right now just applaud me. I actually looked up how to uh, to pronounce things for once. Yes, I did. Um, for the first time ever, I actually did the research to find out how to pronounce things. And there was literally no pronunciation guides on the internet. So I am just going to have to come up with pronunciations of these words. Because the one time when I actually do my job and look things up and how to pronounce... They, they, they don't say, they, there's nothing on the internet to tell you how to pronounce it. And I'm sorry if you hear that noise. That's my phone going off. Anyway, um, so anyways, so, uh, the boogie, bougie? I think it's bugai. We're going to go with that. The bugai people of Indonesia, um, rather than the two genders of our society, have five genders in total. Kalabai and Kalalai people have biological characteristics that have been gendered as male and female, respectively. But they adopt a reproductive ta labor tasks, typically assigned to Makunrai, roughly equivalent to women, and Oroani, roughly equivalent to men, which provides them with a dis different social class. More strict, more interest. Don't worry, we're we're going to dive into all of this. Okay, I know that I just said a bunch of things that probably don't make sense. Don't worry, we're going to make sense of it. Okay, but let me let's continue on a little bit more before we break all of this down. Um, more interestingly, however, are the bisu, the fifth gender, which fills a role distinct from the four from the other four. They fill special ceremonial religious practices which are and are said to be a mixture of the four other genders. Whereas Makunrai and Kalabi take on typically feminine reproductive labor tasks such as homemaking and Oraini and Kaleli take on typically masculine ones such as providing for their spouse, the Bisu transcend this and engage in their own tasks. Okay, so... In the Bugis society, uh, Bugis society, whatever, um, uh, you know, they, so they have five genders, as previously uh, said, but I, I, I'm kind of going to repeat myself a bit when I talk about this because, well, um, I am trying, I want to make what the, that previous paragraph completely understandable. So, the five genders. Oroani, Orani, Orani, whatever. They are basically they are comparable to cisgender men, you know. So basically, 
Just being cisgender male. Makunrai is basically cisgender women. And I want to make it clear. None of these are one for one. Um, when it comes to our, you know, Western perception of gender. Like, it's not like Orani are one-to-one comparable with cisgender men. We're just very close. Okay, so when I say Orani, just just assume, just basically picture cisgender men. Makunari, just picture cisgender woman. Once again, not one-to-one, but Makunari are basically cisgender women. Orani are basically cisgender men. And then Kalali are basically transgender men. Not one-to-one. I want to make that clear. Um, you know, I have a, uh, let's see, LGBT Wikipedia, um, for Kalali. So basically, a Kalali is a person in Buddhist society who is assigned female at birth, but takes on the roles of a heterosexual male. Notice that. Heterosexual male. Kalali dress and present as men, hold masculine jobs, and typically live with female partners, to adopt children. So that's, you know, basically... That's it, kind of... It's basically... Almost, it's basically kind of ver version of transgender men. You know, it's basically the closest analog we have. Um, that they have to what we see as transgender men. Um, and then Calibi. Or Calibi. Uh, these are basically... Uh, kind of as close as they get to our of to what we to to um to our western uh to our western uh transgender women so calibi um according to the bugis uh gender system a calibi is a quote unquote false woman these individuals are generally assigned male at birth but later take on the role of a heterosexual female uh, the dressing and gender expression of Calibi are distinctly feminine, but do not exactly match that of a typical cisgender woman. <clears throat> Calibi are anatomical males who, in many respects, adhere to the expectations of women. However, Calibi do not consider themselves women and are not regarded by the Buddhist community as women. Nor do they wish to become women. Either by accepting restrictions placed on women, such as not going out alone at night, or by undergoing sex reassignment surgery. In modern uh, sexual orientation and gender identity terminology, Calibi would presumably be categorized as male-to-female cross-dressers who identify as male. For gender identity, however, is separate consideration altogether and cannot be generalized. It varies from individual to individual. Um, let's see. And so this is different from Kalali. Kalali are basically the closest thing that they have to our transgender men who are anatomical females who take on and conform to many of the norms, roles, and expectations expected of men. And they have created a, um, but Kalabi, but Kalabi which is, you know, the closest thing they have to transgender women, um, have created a specific role for themselves. So basically, Kalabi, um, do not fit in, have 
for own separate role. They do not conform to society. They do not conform to any of the society's uh, views of women's expectations of women or men. While Kalali, which is basically a very close version of transgender men, basically have conformed to society's uh, view of men. So. Let's see. Anyway, there's more in this article, but I don't think we necessarily need to read all that. So, hopefully that makes a bit more sense. And then there's the Bisu. Um, let's see. So, according to the Wikipedia article, for one to be considered Bisu, all aspects of gender must be combined to form a whole. It is believed you are born with the propensity to become a Bisu, uh, revealed in a baby whose genitalia are ambiguous. Um, so these ambiguous genitalia are not need not be visible. A normative male who becomes a bisu is believed to be female on the inside. This combination of sexes enables a metagender identity to emerge. However, ambiguous genitalia do not confer the state of being abyss alone do not confer the state of being abyssal. The state must also learn the person also must also learn the language, songs, and incantations, and have a gift for bestowing blessings in order to become bisu. They must remain celibate and wear conservative clothes. In pre Islamic Buddhist culture, Bisu were seen as intermediaries between the people and gods. According to Indonesian anthropologist Professor Helen Linter Letith up until the 1940s, the Bisu were central to keeping ancient palace rites alive, including coronations of kings and queens. Um, so basically, Bisu are androgynous or intersex. That's generally how, that's basically how, how we would see them. You know, it's, uh, as we're kind of there. It's the closest they get to are androgynous and intersex. And sometimes they straight up are intersex. Anyway, um... So hopefully that makes a bit more sense. So basically, um... So yeah, basically, Makunari and Kalabi take on... Generally take on more feminine reproductive labor tasks... Um, you know, um, while Orani and Kalili take on generally more masculine ones, and Bisu transcend us and do their own stuff. The Bugai gender system shows how malleable gender can be, but also provides us with an excellent example of the material base to gender. The five genders of the Bugai. Sorry, I think I got hiccups now. Uh, the five genders of the Bugai are distinguished by how reproductive labor is divided by the Bugai people. Everything else is produced <coughs> by this division. Our culture is different from verse, but both are based on the same sorts of divisions of reproductive labor. Uh, what produces gender is how these tasks are divvied up. And all else follows from this. Okay, my god, my hiccups are getting really bad. I'm sorry. Thankfully, this article is almost, this section is almost over because I'm going to end the podcast. 
I don't think we're going to be reading a good good news story today. Sorry. Um. Oh God. Anyway, uh, our um, so basically, the Bugai system and our West Western society are very similar in gender, in that um, the material base of our gender are basically the same. It's you know, it's a superstructure that differs in how we view gender. You know, we don't generally view gender as all that malleable while they do. You know? Anyway, um... And it's, anyway, what produces gender is how these tasks are divvied up, and all else follows from this. This talk of material relations so often comes down to naming capitalistic relations as the base of things. But this does not hold with gender. While gender and capitalism work together and are part of the same social order, um, they do not share the same material base. This isn't to say that the material base of... Sorry. While gender and capitalism work together and are a part of the same social order, they do not share the same material base. This isn't to say that the material base of gender is no relation to capitalism, Reproductive labor is required for producing new laborers for capitalistic production and capitalistic... <gasps> oh god, that was bad. And capitalistic production tends to define the exact nature of male reproductive labor. Okay. Wow. I mean, hiccups so I'd actually be over after that. Holy crap, I have never hiccuped that hard in my life. That was the hardest hiccup ever. I am so sorry for how bad these last few minutes were. I am so sorry. Anyway, um, so yeah, actually, I already delete, got rid of the good news story for this week. So anyway, I guess we'll just end this all there. Um, so yeah, thank you all for listening. That is everything I've got for today. Um, Hope that uh, you learned something, enjoyed it. And if you enjoy what you hear on the show, support it on Patreon, Ko-Fi, pay, uh, PayPal, or, you know, rate, review it on Spotify, Podchaser, Apple. Love to see those reviews. And, yeah, good pods also. Um, and, yeah, that's everything I got today. Uh, find me on social media. Links are in the description. And, yeah, have a great day, everyone. Peace.